morning's passage, it's what's commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse, the extended teaching of Jesus on the Mount of Olives just prior to the betrayal of Judas that would lead to Jesus' arrest, as I just mentioned a moment ago, recorded in all three of the synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's one of the most highly debated teachings of Jesus uh, among scholars with its rich prophetic language, its apocalyptic imagery. In the words of, of one theologian and commentary writer on the book of Luke, the fact is we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the knotty problems of the Olivet Discourse. Study of it requires a proper humility and a willingness to admit that we do not have all of the answers. Surely one of the, the most challenging passages in all of the book of Luke. It took us 21 chapters to, to get here. Uh, one of the most challenging passages with which to sit in the preparing of a, of a sermon. And so I'll do the best I can to offer what, what I believe to be a faithful interpretation and application of, of Scripture while, too, admitting that I don't have all of the answers. This is a tricky passage in the sense even that we're going to sit with about 30 verses or so, and roughly uh, 25 of those uh, present us with questions as to what Jesus is even talking about here. He gives signs of this impending judgment, and we're left to wonder, is he talking about the impending judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem and her temple just a few decades in the wake of Jesus' death? Is he talking about his second coming? Is he doing this sort of Old Testament prophet overlap of multiple uh, meanings behind these, these words of prophecy? And that's where scholars say, we're just not sure. And some are pretty dogmatic in their position, uh, others not so much. I tend to land in the second of those two camps, and so I'm going to try to provide some possibilities here. The good news is, as we get to the application of it all in the last few verses, it's one and the same for Jesus' earliest disciples and for us as well. And so uh, I trust that uh, all of God's word is meant to be uh, in the canon as it sits, and that includes this morning's passage. There's a reason we preach through books of the Bible, uh, because we believe it, it's, it's all God's word. And so uh, as you pick up... Here in, in verse 5 of chapter 21, picking up where we left off last week, Jesus has just pronounced judgment upon Israel's religious leaders. We've seen that a number of times throughout Luke's gospel account. Here exposing the corruption of their hearts and their self-serving motivations as it pertains to their religious practices, soon to be betrayed, soon to be mocked, soon to be beaten, soon to be crucified. These words of, of Jesus here in chapter 21 representing uh, the last of his great discourses. If you look at verse 5, Luke tells us, While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, As for these things that you see as you look out on the temple, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The Jerusalem temple in Jesus' day, it was built by Herod the Great, considered to stand among the, the great wonders of the Roman world. A work of art nearly 50 years in the making, John tells us in his gospel account, chapter 2, verse 20. Taking up roughly one-sixth of the entire city, a perimeter nearly a mile in length. If you can get your mind around that, just to walk the temple. Josephus, the uh, early church Jewish historian uh, once said this, the, the exterior of the structure 
speaking of the temple, lacked nothing that could astound uh, either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner upon it than it radiated so fiery a flash that people straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the rays of the sun. To approaching strangers, he says, it appeared from afar like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes to prevent birds from settling upon and befouling the roof. Some of the stones in the structure, he says, were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. The incredible size of the foundation stones, almost the size of boxcars, was breathtaking. All right, get, get this picture in your mind. Jesus and his disciples are looking down from the Mount of Olives on this great temple, drawn to the grandeur of it all. The view had to be incredible. A seemingly impregnable fortress, the temple was, indestructible in the eyes of so very many. And yet Jesus responds to his disciples with an absolutely astounding statement in declaring that such a great wonder of the world would someday lie in rubble and ruin. The very temple of God in the very city of God. An act of judgment, as we've talked about before, on the Jewish people in the wake of their rejection of the visitation of God and his kingdom in Jesus Christ. Going back to chapter 19, verse 44. Verse 7, the disciples respond. They ask Jesus, teacher, when when will these things be and what will be the, the sign that these things are about to take place? Two questions they ask. In response to this astounding statement uh, regarding the destruction to come. When will this promised act of judgment take place? One. And what are we to look for as, as evidence that that day is drawing near? To which Jesus responds with, with what some scholars believe to be a, a series of events. All of which would go on to see their fulfillment in the destruction of the, the temple and of Jerusalem in 70 AD. While other scholars believe here that Jesus speaks in such a way as to interweave prophecy concerning both the destruction of the temple and his second coming. And as we'll see, there there, there are some things that Jesus says which are unmistakably descriptive of the impending destruction of Jerusalem. And there are other things that Jesus says which are incredibly difficult to unravel in their meaning. Verse 8, he said to them, See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Many will come along, Jesus says, claiming to be the the Messiah, declaring to have the inside track on the coming day of judgment. I mean, there were were surely false messiahs in the the days leading up to the destruction of the temple, as there are those with their self-proclaimed inside track on the second coming of Christ in our own day. We've seen plenty of predictions uh, that have been wrong in our own lifetime. Jesus says, see that you're not led astray in giving credence to to the utterances of so-called prophets. Such calamitous events described here by Jesus, they've been part of the fabric of this fallen world for generations, 
for years and years, wars and famines and natural disasters, along with the many false prophets interpreting those events. Tragedy, it began in the garden when, when sin uh, brought about a curse upon creation and upon we as God's fallen image bearers. In the case of false prophets leading people astray prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, between this moment when Jesus speaks these words and that moment just a few decades later, we know that there were false prophets like Theodos in Acts chapter 5, and Judas the Galilean and also in Acts chapter 5. There's Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. There was Bar-Jesus, the, the Jewish false prophet in Acts chapter 13. In the case of wars prior to the destruction of the temple. There were 20,000 Jews who were killed in Caesarea, history tells us. 10,000 in Damascus, 13,000 in Scythopolis, 50,000 in Alexandria. In the case of earthquakes prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we know that there were earthquakes in Crete, in Colossae, in Smyrna, and in Rome. One example, we know that Paul and Silas were, were freed from prison by way of a great earthquake in Acts chapter 16. So that, so that many signs that Jesus describes here were actually fulfilled back in Jesus' day, in the very days of the early church. All precursors to the rubble and ruin that, that Jerusalem and her temple would soon know. And yet, every time we ourselves see that kind of calamity we're reminded of the greater judgment to come when Jesus returns. He goes on in, in verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And we know that, that Jesus' earliest disciples would go on to face great persecution, many of them brought before both religious and royal courts, Gentile opposition and Jewish opposition, religious opposition and pagan opposition. You have examples like Peter and John before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Stephen before that same Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 6 and 7 before he was stoned to death. You have Paul before King Agrippa in Acts chapters 25 and 26. In each instance, those men responding to their, their persecutors with wisdom and boldness so that many were astounded and left speechless. These are uneducated men. That in and of itself a reminder that we can trust the Holy Spirit to help us, that we don't have to rely on our own strength, that we don't have to trust in our own power. The application is not to, to no longer study Scripture or no longer prep sermons, but, but rather to trust in those moments of persecution, in those moments of skepticism when we're faced with those things, that the Spirit of God will help us. The Spirit of God's been, been helping His people for thousands of years now happy to embolden the people of God to proclaim the Son of God. He goes on in verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. 
By your endurance, you will gain your lives. I think it's safe to say, most of us would agree with this, that that we'll never know anything close to the kind of persecution and suffering that the disciples would go on to experience in the early church. They got nothing out of the deal, according to the world's standards, in proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the grave. They got mocked, just like Jesus, beaten, imprisoned, put to death in torturous ways. From the crucifixion of Philip by the emperor Domitian to the beheading of Bartholomew by the people of India, not to mention the hanging of Luke, the very Luke who wrote this book of the Bible from an olive tree in Greece. Those just a few accounts of of what, according to tradition, happened to many of Jesus' earliest followers. How in the world could Jesus say, verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish? How in the world could he say, by your endurance, you will gain your lives? And the answer is, and we've talked about this as a church before, that those who endure will be raised with the risen Christ to everlasting life. It's the hope of the gospel. They will know an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as Paul says. Matthew's gospel account The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those, Jesus says, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is, this is the promise that shined brightly before most all of the disciples as they faced a martyr's death for Jesus' sake. This is the promise that shined brightly before all of those throughout the history of the church, having died for what they believed. It's the promise that shines brightly today for those being persecuted even unto death in other parts of the world. And even we who, who may be mocked and ridiculed by those around us for believing in this Jesus and his gospel. He goes on in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Here here you can maybe see why scholars are are not quite as divided on what Jesus has been alluding to up to this point in this great discourse of his, as you more clearly uh, appear to be dealing with the language of Jerusalem's destruction here with specific geographical reference to Judea and her surrounding mountains, as opposed to the the more universal language of the, the judgment to come upon the world when Jesus returns to set all things right. The language of of desolation, verse 20, it it comes from the the book of Daniel, which we studied as a church several years back. 
describing one who would someday desecrate the temple and abolish temple sacrifices, a prophecy that was initially fulfilled about 200 years before Jesus came into the world. When a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes back in 167 BC dedicated the temple to the Greek god Zeus, a man whose soldiers were not only intimate with harlots in the very temple itself, but who abolished Jewish sacrifices and sacrificed pigs in the house of the Lord. Here Jesus declares that, that there will be another desecration of the temple to come. One that, that will be like that which took place in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. History tells us that a few decades after Jesus' resurrection, 67 AD, the zealots made the temple their headquarters and appointed their own high priest who made mock sacrifices in the temple. Those things taking place just three years before the besieging of the city of Jerusalem, when over a million Jews, according to some first century historians, would go on to die. An act of judgment on the Jewish people in the wake of their rejection of Jesus and his kingdom. A foreshadowing of the, of the judgment to come when Jesus returns for those who are outside of Christ. He goes on to, to get what seems to be a little more apocalyptic in verse 25. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, this, is, this is where scholars seem to part ways a bit. Some believe this is a continuation of the signs preceding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, while others believe that Jesus shifts his attention here to the events preceding his second coming. But with the, the seemingly, again, apocalyptic language of it all, you can see why people would go there. Most of, of which is taken, that, that imagery of the cosmos, the, the apocalypse of it all, uh, from a number of places in the Old Testament. Books like Isaiah and Ezekiel, where you have that kind of cosmic imagery. The sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Interestingly used in, in those Old Testament passages to describe the destruction of earthly political powers. Those like uh, Babylon and Egypt and Edom. So that some believe Jesus is, is speaking metaphorically here. Describing the political overthrow of Jerusalem. The emergence of a new order in the destruction of the city and her temple. Pointing out that there's no indication of a subject change as you move from verse 24 to verse 25. While others believe that, that the language is not at all metaphorical, but rather apocalyptic in describing those events to come preceding the second coming of Jesus. Similarly, scholars are divided on what the coming of the, the Son of Man with power and great glory means. Verse 27, that language coming from Daniel chapter 7 with its imagery of Jesus receiving power, glory, and, and authority to reign. So that some believe that Jesus is here describing the day uh, in which he will soon bring judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple as the risen and ascended king on the other side of his resurrection. While others believe, again, this is the language of his second coming. The day when Jesus will come again with the clouds. 
a little frustrating, isn't it? He goes on in verse 29 to tell a parable. He says to his disciples, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that, that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here again, you have disagreement among scholars. Some believe that the language of this generation means that all of these things would come to pass that we've seen in these verses preceding before the, the deaths of those to whom Jesus is speaking in this moment. Meaning that we're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, not the second coming of Jesus. While others believe this generation can be interpreted in other ways to mean something along the lines of this wicked generation or this perverse generation. Something bigger than a single lifespan, giving space uh, for, for Jesus here to mean his second coming. Regardless of interpretation, there's one thing that we can surely say, and, and that is that none of us can reorchestrate the seasons. God makes it cold in winter. You and I adjust with our winter coats. God makes it warm in summer. This summer a little warmer than others. And you and I adjust in humble reliance on a working A.C., and get really frustrated when the AC breaks down. Right? The bloom of spring, it always precedes the warmth of summer. Here Jesus declaring that the signs of the destruction to come will be evident like a tree in bloom as evidence of a change in season. As Jesus said to the crowds back in chapter 12, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? We talked about this back in chapter 12, that weather in the first century Mediterranean world was predictable in certain ways, just as it is for us. Clouds rising in the west would bring dampened air that produced showers as they ascended the cooler hills. Same with the south winds blowing in from the desert, which brought with them scorching heat. Jesus says there, you can predict the weather based on the signs. He's talking to the religious leaders here. But you fail to see the signs in the blindness of your hypocrisy that the kingdom of God is upon you. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus exhorts his disciples to be ready. Trusting that as sure as summer follows springtime... So Jesus' words will surely come true. Verse 33. The fall of, of Jerusalem and her temple would come true. The return of Jesus to set all things right will come true. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. One of the most famous verses in all the Old Testament. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I'm reminded, I think I brought this up. A couple times along the way, the French philosopher Voltaire, uh, who really sought to lead a number of Christians uh, off the beaten path of belief, in his day predicted that, that the Bible would be out of print, essentially, roughly 100 years after his lifetime. And in the great irony of it all, his former home 
uh, only years later would be used to distribute Bibles. And according to tradition, those Bibles, when they were printed, included inside of them the, the recording of the words of Luke chapter 21, verse 33. The word of our God will stand forever. The word of Jesus Christ, the son of God, will stand forever. Again, there's a reason we preach these verses too. They're Jesus' words. They stand. His words regarding the destruction of the temple proved true, as will his promise to come again someday to set all things right. And if you understand anything of this broken, sad, sorrowful world, that should make your heart leap this morning. And that brings us to the application of Jesus' teaching. As you pick up these last few verses, he says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all of these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Here the argument seems to favor those who believe that Jesus is talking about his second coming as the language of all who dwell on the face of the whole earth seems bigger than just the judgment of Jerusalem. As the Apostle Paul would go on to say, Romans 14 verse 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That Jesus will someday return to bring about the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as Jesus himself taught. And the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And on that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Jesus Christ. None of us knows exactly when that day will be. We only join in the songs of false messiahs when we say that we do. And yet each and every calamity as we look around us in the world is a reminder that that day will surely come just as the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem surely came. So that I would say, perhaps, and I say it every week, perhaps today is the day of salvation for some, the day to repent of your sins and to turn to Jesus in faith, trusting him for the forgiveness that can only be found in him, that you might be on the right side of judgment when he returns. Consider this. The darkness that would soon sweep over Jerusalem in 70 AD, just a few decades after Jesus spoke these words, it's not the only first century darkness that that great city would know. In the days following this teaching of Jesus, he would die under the darkened skies of Jerusalem, the darkness sweeping over the city that day, a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus in our place. Jesus, the true and greater temple, as we talk about all the time around here, destroyed and raised up three days later, swallowed up, Jesus was, in the flood of God's judgment that you and I might have safe passage into his eternal kingdom. What is your response to, to Jesus? Is it religious pride or irreligious skepticism that, that awaits its fall? Or is it a humility that bows down? 
repents of sin and looks to him in faith. For we who profess to know, love, and follow this Jesus, like his early disciples, we're to, we're to watch ourselves. This is not a message of easy believism, which has become prevalent in the American South. This is not a pray a prayer, check a box, and then coast and, and live as your own king or queen of your own kingdom. We're to watch ourselves, Jesus says, lest our hearts be weighed down with sin and the cares of this life. I'm reminded of the parable of the sower and the soils. Like Jesus' early disciples, we're to stay awake at all times, praying for the the God-given strength to stand firm to the end. In that sense, the the Apostle Paul sums up the application of of this morning's passage as it pertains to the broad uh, representation of, of God's redeemed. James brought it before us just a few minutes ago. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. If we want to understand the application of Jesus' teaching this morning, here it is. For, for all of God's redeemed. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 